either in your Bible or turn on your Bible if you're on your phone or there might be one under your seat if you need one to Matthew chapter 8, first book of the New Testament, so it's further along in the Bible than it may look. But let's look in Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, and we will see what the Word of God says this morning. Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, it says this, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let me pray over these verses this morning. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the assurance we have in Christ, for our salvation, and for those who know you to, to have, have you walk along with us in life. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mount Washington is located in New Hampshire, and it's the tallest mountain in northeast, uh, the northeastern United States. It rises all the way to about 6,300 feet. All the way up there. But, it's, uh, it, it, so, but you have to think, I mean, New, New Hampshire is about sea level, right? And so if you figure 6,000 feet up from where maybe we're at, then we're talking maybe 12,000 feet. There's that kind of difference between where people live and the top of this mountain. In, uh, in September, on September 14th, 1881, there was a lady by the name of Lizzie Bourne, not Borden, but Lizzie Bourne, from Maine. She was 21, 23. She was 23. Her, her uncle, and her cousin began to ascend the mountain around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They began walking to the top of Mount Washington. About 4 o'clock, they got halfway up. But then they encountered a violent storm. Now, Mount Washington holds the northern hemisphere record and the western hemisphere record, record for directly measured wind surface at 231 miles an hour. The storms there are incredible. And you can think maybe the, the, the different water, bodies of water that surround it, like the, the Atlantic Ocean and, and maybe some of the Great Lakes that are up that way and and uh, what might cause that. Now that 231 was measured in 1934. It's long after our story. But the point is, it's known for quick and strong storms. So they're walking up this, this uh, mountain, and they encounter an incredible storm that ends up having snow and wind, and they get lost. They get confused. They cannot find their way. 
but they keep trying to make it. Around 10 o'clock that night, they're still trying to make it. And they just started with regular clothes for that time period. And you can imagine a young lady in the clothes that they wore in 1881 trying to make it up the, up the mountain. She, she, she's trying to make it, and at 10 o'clock, she laid down and died from exposure, this Lizzie Bourne did. In the morning, the, the storm had died away. The sun started shining. The uncle and the cousin, who just barely survived the night, they woke up and they found they were only a few hundred yards away from the summit house. There was a marker near the top of Mount Washington that marks the spot where Lizzie lied down and died. She was so close to the top she might have been able to throw a stone and hit this, this summit house. Maybe a hundred more steps, she would have found shelter. But she didn't know it. She was disheartened by the storm. She was beaten by the storm. She, she was distressed in her spirit, as you might imagine. And she was at her end. And she could not see the steps. Couldn't see the steps ahead. So she laid down and, and died. And maybe that describes where you're at today. You feel like you're taking a nice hike in this life, and then you've been blindsided by this violent storm in your life. You've been disheartened by the storm. It's been beating you up. It's distressing you. You want to lay down, and you want to give up. But I, I have hope for you today if that's where you're at. I want to give you hope. Jesus has the authority over the storm in your life. He has authority over it. It doesn't matter how strong you think it is. It doesn't matter how blinding it is or how much it's distressing you. Jesus has authority over that storm. And that's what we're going to see in our, in our passage today in Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, we've been reading about Jesus' authority. He had authority over the physical ailments and how he healed those who were outcasts. And we had a story of discipleship, specifically the cost of discipleship. And now we have three new stories of Jesus' authority over fallen creation. And then we'll have a story about discipleship, specifically the call of discipleship. But today we're going to focus on just one of those stories over the authority over the fallen, this fallen world. And we're, today we're going to hear about how Jesus calms the storm, and by doing so, he shows he has authority over this world. Any circumstance that you have, Jesus has authority over it. And we can walk away assured of that. So what can we learn from this passage? What can we learn? Well, first of all, we see that when we're following Jesus, Jesus may lead us into a storm, right? Look in verse 23 and 24. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. See, Matthew's clear about who's leading and who's following. And he puts this story right after the story we talked about last week, where there was two people who wanted to follow Jesus, but hadn't counted the cost. Remember the scribe says, 
I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, well, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We see that right here in this book. He has nowhere to lay his head, so he's sleeping on a ship in the middle of a storm because that's all he could find. There's another guy who says, I want to follow you, but, but I've got to do this other stuff first. It's not the priority in my life. Well, here we see that Jesus it says to his 12 disciples, follow me, and they're following. But what they don't know is that they're following him right into a storm. Jesus sometimes leads us into a storm. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they would encounter. They're not guaranteed a place to sleep. They're not guaranteed safety. They're guaranteed that Jesus is going to be with them. That's what they're guaranteed. So in following Jesus, they were led directly into the storm. Now, the Sea of Galilee uh, in the northern part of, of Israel, we would call it a big lake. It is 13 miles from north to south. It's eight miles from east to west. It sets 680 feet below sea level. 680 feet below sea level. So to the west, to the west, there are some high hills that, that rise about 2,600 feet above the sea. So it's about 2,000 foot above sea level. But, but there, so from the sea to the mountain, about 2,600 feet and there's some deep ravines cut into those mountains, and the wind blows, and it hits those ravines, and it's like a fountain that goes deep, in, you know, it, it, it funnels into those ravines, and so it pushes out on, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee, and it creates some dramatic wind and storms. Dr. W.M. Christie, who spent many years in the Galilean area, said this, During these storms, the wind seems to blow from all directions at the same time. They rush down the narrow gorges in the hills and strike the water at an angle. So experienced fishermen like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they couldn't really predict when a storm was going to come or how bad it would be. And Jesus led them right down into the middle of a storm. And to top things off, before the storm comes, Jesus falls asleep. And so the storm shows up, and things are rocking, and the wind is splashing, the waves are splashing over, and, and the ship is all over the place. And Jesus is sleeping. I mean, surely the disciples thought, well, Jesus is with us. Nothing bad will happen to us. And if he's asleep, that means he's not on alert. So surely nothing ever will be happening when Jesus is in the boat with us. The Greek word that's used for storm here, mine, my, my Bible has a little note there that says shaking. The little footnote said shaking. It's the word seismos. We get the word seismograph from it. It would be the word that's used for earthquake. And it's strange that Matthew talks about this storm being literally a shaking. But I think he was trying to show us that we could apply this to our lives because sometimes there's storms that come into our life and it shakes us, Right? where it starts feeling like the foundation of our life is in this earthquake and this storm is coming. 
It's confusing because we say, okay, I got in the Lord with, I got in the boat with Jesus and, and I got in the boat with him and it looked like it's going to be smooth sailing and then a storm breaks out and it's like he's asleep. He doesn't even care or know this is going on. That's how we feel sometimes. I would, I feel that way. Maybe you all got it, but sometimes that's, that's how we feel. I think maybe sometimes if we're following Christ, there's going to be no storms in our life. After all, we're in the boat with Jesus. What could happen? But we're all, but, but, but it's an object lesson of what we just talked about in 18 through 22. The Son of Man have no place to lay his head, and there is a cost, there is a priority to following Christ. Following Christ, salvation is free, Accepting Christ into your life, but it is costly, and it may cost us maybe some safety, maybe our comfort. So what should we think about Jesus leading us into the storm? Andrew Murray said in his said, said about this, said this about Jesus leading us into the storm. He said, First, first he brought me here. It is by his will. I am in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. First, he brought me there. Second, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. Jesus brought us there, and it's by his grace he's going to keep us there in his love. Third, he said, then he'll make the trial of blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last he said, in his good time, he can bring me out again, how and when he knows. And then Andrew Murray finished by saying, let let me say I am here. That is, I'm in this storm. He says, one, by God's appointment, Two, in his keeping. Three, under his training. And four, for his time. If you're a believer in Christ and you're in the storm, you have someone who's trusted Christ into your life, and you're in the middle of a storm, be assured that you're in the storm by God's appointment. You are there in his keeping, in his care. He is caring for you in the middle of the storm. There are things he is trying to teach us in the middle of that storm. And when he wants and how he wants, he will lead us out of that storm. The point is there's danger in discipleship. There is glory. There's amazing glory in becoming more like Christ, but there's danger there too. When we follow Jesus, he may lead us into a storm of life. And our, our life may feel like it's been shaken, like it's been through an earthquake. But he, might, but, but he has led us there, and he's going to keep us safe there. Jesus is with us. And that brings us to the second point, that not only Jesus led him in the storm, but he displays his power in the storm. That's when Jesus starts displaying his power. Look in 25 and 26. They came to him and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea, 
and it became perfectly calm. Here's some experienced sailors that are in this boat, and they are in the middle of this this sea, and they are saying, we are going to die. It must have been a bad storm. Because these guys have been on this sea during the middle of a storm. And they're like, God, we're, we're going to die. And so they woke Jesus up, and when he woke up, he began to display his authority. First, he displayed his authority over his disciples, which I think is a fascinating point. In the middle of the storm, and they're saying, we're dying, that, that, that we are going to die. He says that he, I mean, he doesn't say, but he's going to show he has authority over his disciples. Look what he says. They woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. They're in the middle of the storm, threatening their lives. And if you read all the different gospel accounts, you hear them all, they're all saying different things. Matthew says, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Mark says the disciples say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Luke says, master, master, we're perishing. Picture 12 men scared to death trying to wake up Jesus, and all of them are saying, hey, hey, wake up, we're dying, help us, we're perishing, we're in a storm, wake up. Everyone's yelling at them, 12 guys, haven't you like that, waking you up from a nap 12 guys screaming at you we're gonna die we're gonna die don't you care about us we need your help we're gonna die we're perishing save us and before he calms the sea and i think this is important before he calms the sea he calms his disciples They are freaking out, right? And he's not upset that they woke him from a nap. He's upset that they're disturbed about their situation. It's not that they woke him up. It's that they, it's in the distressed state that they're in. And in the middle of the storm, before they're safe from the storm, he, before he calmed the seas, he begins teaching them. He says, why are you afraid O men of little faith. Again, my Bible has a little note over there, and that word afraid is cowardly. Why are you being cowardly about this situation? Why are you afraid? And little faith has more to do with quality than quantity. He didn't say you only have a little bit of faith. He says the faith that you have, it's not great. (laughs) Don't be a coward with your poor faith, but instead understand who you're in the storm with. I mean, they woke him up. They knew he could do something about it. That's why they woke up Jesus. We're going to die. Do something. But I think they thought Jesus was going to die with them. We're all going to die, Jesus. We're not, none of us are going to make it out of this storm alive. And so, Jesus, you've got to get up and start bailing, you know, bailing the, the water out of the boat and holding on to the ropes. We're all got to do this together. And didn't think, maybe, that this storm wasn't going to overtake Jesus, but he was going to overtake that storm. So in the middle of the storm, before Jesus does anything to change the situation, he changes the disciples, he teaches them in the midst of the storm, beef up their faith, don't be cowardly. And I think it's important that he didn't calm the storm first. 
while the waves were still threatening them, while it was in the middle of the storm, because there are times we're in the middle of the storm and we say, I just want out of it. I don't know what it is. I don't know why God's making me do this. God, just get me out of the storm. But most of the time, he's going to work on us before he works on the storm because he wants us to become like him. That's the purpose of this life. Surrender to him and become more like him. So he says, man, where'd your faith go? Don't you know I'm the one sent by God to complete my father's mission? I'm not going to die in a storm. I've got bigger things to do. And so he, he calms his disciples, and by calming them, he shows he has authority over his disciples. And after he calms them, then calms them he shows he has authority over nature It says he rebuked the winds and the waves. And Mark says when he did this, he said to the waves, hush, be still. He goes, shh, to the waves, right? And it says there was a calmness. It's, you know, if there was wind that was blowing and the wind stopped immediately, waves on the water continue on. But Jesus said, hush, be still to the wind, to the sea, to the storm. And it became perfectly clear clear right then. He has control over the natural forces of this world. See, the sea was thought to be the most dangerous power in the world. In Revelation, when it says that uh, they looked and they were up in, in heaven and there was no more sea, It's talking about the danger of the sea. I mean, that's where people would fall over and they would die in the depths of the sea. There was no more, there was no more danger. That's what that's what Revelation's talking about. The sea was the most powerful force that this world could throw at them. And people were afraid of it. And Jesus controls it by speaking to it, telling it to shh, calm down. And the sea just stops. That's the kind of authority he has over our circumstances. The most powerful force in the world, and he says, be still, and it becomes still. And it's no no less true today. Whatever the most powerful force we think in our life is, the storm that we can't get out of, that there is no one who control it, it's even going to overtake Jesus It's more powerful than anything he can do. He's going to calm us. And then he has the authority to calm the storm. There's a singer, Scott Crepain, who who has a song entitled, Sometimes He Calms the Storm. And here's, here's how the song starts. It says, All who sail the sea of faith find out before too long how quickly blue skies can grow dark and gentle winds grow strong. Suddenly fear is like white water, pounding on the soul. Still we sail on knowing that our Lord is in control. On the chorus it says, Sometimes he calms the storm with a whispered, Peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close, 
and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. See, Jesus is going to display his power in the middle of the storm. And that power is either going to calm you or it's going to calm the storm, but he's going to just show that he has authority in this place. In this place in our life where we think nothing else is in control except this trial we're going through, and Jesus says, no, I'm in control. Trust in me. I'm walking with you through it. So as, as easy it is to preach and harder it is, is to walk through, we shouldn't reject the storms of life. I know that's easier said than done. Because during the storm, Jesus is going to display his dynamic power And he's going to do so in a way that's going to reveal who he is. And that brings us to the last thing I want to point out about this passage is that when Jesus displays his power in the storm, his power reveals his identity. We find out who he is when he does that. Look what it says. He spoke and the winds and sea and it became perfectly calm. 27, it says, the men were amazed that you could say their jaws dropped open, you know, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? See, these disciples knew their Old Testament scripture. They knew, it wasn't Old Testament at that time, it was the only Testament at that time, but they knew what it said, that God is the one who controls the sea. We got those passages over and over, Job 38, 8 through 11, God is speaking to Job in this passage, and God says, Or who enclosed the sea with the doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. Here shall your proud waves stop. God says, I set where the oceans are. And the waves come in, and they don't come in and crash all over the land because God says, I want you to come here and no place else, and they obey him. And he put doors, so to speak. This is all figurative speech. Doors that keep the oceans where the oceans are at. God declares he alone is in control of the sea. And the psalmist agree in, psalmist, in Psalm 65, 5 through 8, by awesome deeds, your answer, you answer us in righteousness, O God, of, of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who established the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas and roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs, You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. It's God who calms the seas and the roaring waves. And and he says that it's God who does that. In Psalm 89, 8-9, it says similarly, The Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. 
Only God has the authority to calm the seas. The disciples knew this, and Jesus speaks out and says, Hush, be still, and the sea stops, and they say, What is this about? Who is this guy? I thought God could only calm the seas. And Jesus is showing right here that he is God, fully in the flesh. Who is this man? He is fully God, fully man who God sent because he loves us so that we could have our sins placed upon him so that when he was crucified on the cross, our sins would be paid for through him and we would receive his righteousness. He was the Messiah, the chosen one sent by God to forgive mankind. So when he displays his power in our lives, we see who he is. And it might be that he displays that he is our, our healer. It might display that he's our protector. Or that he might display that he's our rock and refuge. Whatever the storm is, he will display his power in it, either by calming us, calming the storm, maybe both. But when he does that, we get a glimpse, a better glimpse of who he is. That he has authority in our lives and he has the authority over our problems. So there are times we pray and we want to get close to Jesus. We say, God, I want to know you more. I want to trust you more. And when we do that, storms come and we say, why? I want to be close to you. Why would you bring this storm in my life? God says, because I'm going to display my power and you're going to see me clearer in that. And so that's why Paul says later, I'm going to rejoice in my trials. Why James says, count it all joy when you experience trials. Because it makes us more like Christ and we see Christ more. Enterprise Alabama has been called the peanut capital of the United States. It was settled in 1881, strangely enough, when Our Lady was walking up the hill, but that's got nothing to do with nothing. Anyway, it was settled in 1881, town grew. It became known for growing cotton, a lot of agriculture around there. And so it was uh, struggling along. And around 1915, the boll weevils came in and decimated the cotton crop. And people were going bankrupt. And the town was not sure what to do. People didn't know how they were going to eat. And it was a tough time for them. The farms were on the brink of bankruptcy and, and, and they didn't know what to do. And someone let them know that their soil was actually really good for peanuts. It would work great for peanuts. So they started planting peanuts. And within two years, Enterprise Alabama became the leading producer of peanuts in our country. And people were getting rich overnight because, because of this farming and all that. So the town decided to make a monument for their newfound prosperity. They wanted to recognize this. And so in the middle of town, in a, in a major intersection, and you can see it today, they have this nice, beautiful statue of a woman, kind of like Lady Liberty, holding up a giant bull weevil. Big old monument to a bull weevil. 
You go to Enterprise, Alabama right now, and I tell my daughter this all the time, only in Alabama, right? Um, At the main intersection of the city, you'll see this huge statue, 13 foot tall, of this woman holding a giant bull weevil. And there's a monument there, and there's, I mean, a plaque, and it's, this is what it says. In profound appreciation of the bull weevil and what it has done as the herald of prosperity, this monument was erected. See, the thing that was their destruction came out, they, they said, thank you. If the bull weevil hadn't come, they were just kind of struggled on with cotton. But this trial came into their life and they were going to face bankruptcy. In the middle of it, I expect they were cursing the boll weevil and hated this thing. But then these farmers adapted and started planting peanuts and things turned around better than they ever could have imagined. So they say, thank you, boll weevil, for being the pest. Right? Look, the storm that you believe might turn out to be your ruin could be the solution that God is planning for your life. The question that you have or the driving that you have to get closer to God or to find out what God is doing in your life, the answer very well could be this storm. And getting through it And looking back on it, you might say, maybe, thank you, God, for making me go through that storm. So I am where I'm at now. It's what Joseph did in the Old Testament. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery when he was a young man. He was taken off by the Ishmaelites. Treated terribly, probably eventually finds himself in an Egyptian jail for years, wondering what is going on. God finally calls him out. He becomes the second in command of Egypt, and he is, he is reunited with his brothers and finally reveals who he is to his brothers, and they become reunited. And what did Joseph say? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. See, year 12 in that prison, Joseph may or may not have been thinking, God's going to save an entire nation through me. And i got to be in this jail for that to happen. He, he didn't know that. He just knows I'm in jail and I'm, I shouldn't be here. But God says, I've got a reason for it. It doesn't make it easier. An Egyptian jail is still an Egyptian jail, right? A storm is still a storm. Things are destroyed. It's hard to live through a storm. But it very well could be that it could help serve and help you bless others and maybe help bring them to the Lord or to save a people we don't know. So the question is, is Jesus leading you into a storm? If he is, he's not trying to harm you. He's with you. He's not abandoned you. He wants to display his power in your life because when he displays his power, 
we see who he is. So what's your storm? What's your bull weevil right now? The thing you believe that if it continues one minute more, it's going to lead to your utter ruin. I don't have you bow your heads and think. How is God showing you who he really is in the middle of this storm? What is God doing? And how is he revealing himself? God, I pray for each person here. We all have our storms. We all have that bold weevil pest that's coming into our life and it's making us feel like we're going to end up in absolute ruin if it continues anymore. But God, more than anything, we want to see you. So God, I pray that if there's someone here who has given up hope, who has said, I am tired of the fight, I pray today that they would turn it over to you and that you would calm them in the middle of the storm, that you would build up their faith and bring them courage in the middle of the storm to hear from you and to grow from you. God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, their life may feel like it's in the storm because you're drawing them to you and you want them to surrender their life to you for the first time if there's someone here who needs to do that God I pray that they would they would turn their life over to you before it's too late God however you want to move in our hearts I pray we would freely let you convict us encourage us Speak into our life so that we could see you and know you. In Jesus' name, amen.